Book of Revelation, chapter 2. Let's all go there. <clears throat> We're on the fourth letter of seven. And um, I don't know why, but this is the longest letter out of all seven of them, and they gave it to me. They gave it to the long-winded guy. So um, I, 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 I can't see us going, like, you know, too crazy, too long on this, but um, it'll just take the time it takes. One of the things I don't want to do, like, is shortchange, and I know that that's one of the challenges as you uh, are a preacher and you put sermons together is that no matter what text you're in and how much time you put into it, you can't exhaust it, which is rad. The Word of God's, like, simply inexhaustible. Like, you can keep going and going and going, and then it keeps opening doors to other rooms as you do it. And so I know that there's got to be, like, a point of, of, of resistance where you stop. But what I don't want to do is shortchange you the other way uh, for the sake of, like, fitting into 30 minutes or a 35-minute sermon on these things because there's just too much important stuff wrapped up in these. And right now I just said probably two minutes of things that could have been cut out. So sorry about that. Uh, Thyatira, smallest town out of every single one of these places written to. All right, let's read the text. Chapter two, book of Revelation, uh, verse 18 uh, down. To the angel of the church in Thyatira, write the words of the son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and eat food offered to idols or sacrificed to idols. I, give her I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of their works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and the heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works." But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give him authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself has, re has received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All right, first off, just like our pattern has been this whole time, uh, we need to deal with one of the main characters, which is the city itself, which is Thyatira. Um, why do we do this? Why does this matter that we go back and we, and we draw history and we draw context? And this is why. If you, when reading your Bibles, come to a wrong interpretation of something, you will then come to a wrong application of something. In other words, if the interpretation of what you're reading is off, then your orthopraxy or your application will be off as well. That's why it's really important that we understand context. That's why we need to read our Bibles in a way that it was uh, intended by the author, it's so that we come to the right meaning or intention of the author to come to the right practice or application. Does that make sense? It's a lot of people practicing a lot of wrong things in the church because of wrong interpretation. And so we don't want to do that. We want to, we want to apply right interpretation. What's up, Josh? I didn't see you over there, dude. So uh, first character of the letter, Thyatira. Um, what was that city like? It was founded by Alexander the Great as a military garrison. Uh, and him, his soldiers, and a majority of the citizens uh, there, from its conception, right up to the time this letter was, was written, worshiped the god Apollos. Anyone know what Apollos was known as? What, it, what, it, what, his, what his title was? The son of God. Apollos was known as the son of God. Um, it, it was a normal town, like I said, far, false, far smaller than the other uh, cities here, that are written to, nothing special, nothing fancy, nothing you'd leave your country to move to, right? It wasn't a resort destination. 
Uh, it was very average. It was very industrial, very blue collar. It's primary commodity being textiles, all right? And it is said that the water there was so rich in minerals that it became famous for its color red in its textiles. Uh, for some reason, the red that Thyatira was able to produce was way more bold and way more brilliant than anyone else was able to produce. So whatever that means. Uh, it was so unique and desired that it became world famous for its color red and its textiles. Uh, do you, does anyone remember a lady named Lydia? Paul's very first convert. Do you remember what the text says of her? That she was a seller of purple from Thyatira. It was actually this, this brilliant red is, is uh, from Thyatira that she was selling in other places. Pretty interesting. But Thyatira wasn't just famous for its red textiles. It was also famous for its silversmithing and for its bronze smithing. Apparently, it produced some of the best pieces in the world when it came to silver and bronze. And it was in this industry that the majority of the men inside the church and actually just the majority of the population in general in Thyatira had their occupation. It would be in the smithing industry. The catch is that Thyatira held to a social, industrial, religious structure, which means that all three of these things were pressed together. They were inseparable. And this three-pronged structure was all formed around and lived out through, realized through, the guilds in Thyatira, which are basically like unions, okay? And each local industry had its own guild, the textile theirs, silversmiths theirs, bronzesmiths theirs, etc. But like I said, the problem is that these guilds weren't just a labor union, they weren't just connected to your source of income, but also your social and religious ties and allegiances as well. So they were basically life guilds. In other words, they were hubs for worldview formation and control. They were hubs for conforming the citizens, making sure they continue to conform to the dominant Roman worldview. It was all very intentional. It was all very calculated. And since life there centered around the guilds, the guilds did life together. Each guild did this by holding frequent parties and frequent get-togethers and frequent celebrations in the temple of Apollos, which consisted of very immoral practices like we see written here in this letter. And what were the Christians to do? What were the Christians to do? If you said that you weren't going to these festivities, you risk the success of the guild because Apollos might be angry. And if Apollos is angry, then that industry suffers hardship. It may even crumble. It's bad for everybody in the industry. They'd, so what they would do, because this was simply unacceptable to reject the guild meetings and guild life, was had no choice but to execute the obvious and expel you. You would lose your job. They would basically hit you where it hurts the most, which is in the pocketbook, right, if you didn't play ball. And every single Christian living in Thyatira in those days had to make that choice, Jesus or his career. And that's Thyatira, Thyatira in a nutshell. So let's go ahead and go to the letter, starting with the qualification of the author. Remember, these are, all these letters are broken into the same uh, framework, the same structure where you've got the qualification of the author of the letter, the one speaking. That's where Jesus qualifies himself. He says, this is why, these are the reasons why I'm able to say the things I'm about to say to you, okay? And so we get that first, then it goes into the body, which is the report guard, then it goes into basically the prize uh, or, or the reward to the overcomer. So first, the qualification of the author, which begins with the words of the Son of God. Now, why would he start this way? Why would he choose this title out of all of his titles that Jesus holds, the words of the Son of God, right? Is it arbitrary? And the answer is no. It's intentional. It's intentional with how he introduces himself here because of considering what Apollos was known as, the son of God, 
right? Jesus is letting them know right up front, no, no, there's only one God and only one son of God, and it is me, not Apollos. It is he who is talking to you, who is the true son of God, right? Apollos is a counterfeit. Jesus then says, who has eye, eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze, which I think is an obvious reference to uh, their industry in large part, to what would have been the primary occupation of most of the men in the church in that city, which is smithing. But of course, there's a bigger reference to this language in having eyes like a flame of fire and feet like burnished bronze, which speaks to the fact that Jesus sees all things He knows all things, right? He knows their works. And that he will carry out judgment, his feet, according to what he sees. That's what it's saying. I see you, and I'm going to respond according to what I see in judgment. Eyes, feet. Basically, I know your works, and I'll be dealing with them soon, right? Or as Jesus says down in verse 23, if you let your eyes run down there, all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and the heart, eyes like a flame of fire, and I will give to each one of you according to your works, feet of burnished bronze. Basically saying the same thing. It's a sobering thought too, because again, like I said last time, like Jesus cares about what we do. Like he, he cares about us here. He cares about his church globally. He cares about what's going on in his church globally. He cares about his church locally and regionally. He cares about the gospel and what we're doing with the gospel and what we're doing for his glory in Lapine. And then he cares about it on a micro level, on an individual level. What we're doing here in the door, how we're treating each other, how we're living when we walk outside these doors, what we're doing with the gospel that's been entrusted to us and given to us. Are we sticking it in the ground and burying it until he comes back? Or are we investing, right? He cares about that. And I think this is, again, just an important thing to throw out there because I think we can think, gosh, we're just this this little teensy, insignificant church um, in this place that nobody knows about. um, and, and, And surely Jesus... Um, has more important things to do. Surely he has more important, bigger, more beautiful, more grand candlesticks to walk through. But we're reminded again that, that Jesus cares about this candlestick, that this also is in that hallway, the candlestick of the door that Jesus is walking up and down and observing and paying attention to. He cares about what goes on here and, and how we do it. The, uh, which brings us to the evaluation, the report card part of the letter, the body of the letter. Now, I'm not going to do surgery on all of this. Uh, again, there's, there's a lot here. I, I won't fit it into an hour if I do. Uh, but, but what's important is that we get the heart of what Jesus is communicating and the heart of what these people need to get. We need to uh, observe that and bump that up against ourselves. So That's going to be our goal here with the body of the letter or the report card, which he starts off by saying, I know your works, your love and your faith and your service and your patient endurance. He goes on to say, your latter works exceed the first. And there's a couple interpretations of this, but I believe it's exactly what it looks like. Uh, Basically, the works that you do now are better than the works that you did in the beginning. Like, you're, you're, in, in, a, in other words, this church, for the most part, seems to be on an upward trajectory. And you're going, well, wait a minute, dude. Like, have you read this letter? Like, that doesn't look good. It doesn't mean that it wasn't worse when they started. <laughs> it doesn't mean that they, that they weren't messier than they are here. Like, they, they seem to be on, a, on an upward uh, trajectory. There seems to be improvement from where they started. And, and, and this, is, this is pretty rad, considering what they were up against. Remember, we think we have it bad, and, and yes, things are getting worse in our country. Things are, are, are definitely on a downward trajectory in the, in the nation that we know um, and have always known, uh, most of us. But um, what you and I deal with is nothing compared to the system that, and the government that basically all the churches in the early church had to deal with. It's just insane what these people were up against. Um, and, and these are pretty good words to hear from Jesus, right? I mean, I would hope that these are words that you and I would want to hear from Jesus, um, that we could be commended for something like our love for each other. That's pretty rad. That's like top of the pyramid stuff right there. Or our service, 
right? Which should be a natural byproduct of our love. <laughs> if we're good at loving people, we're going to be good at not loving ourselves, but putting others ab above ourselves, which equals, equates into service, right? That they're patient. That they're enduring. He says, you love well, you believe well, you serve well, you endure well. And it's grown, it's matured, it's gotten better. He likes this. So they, they get a, a kind of an A or an A plus in these critical areas, which are critical areas. Um, and, and I hope that we're known by these things too here in this place. Um, and it would be, again, it would be rad to go to the overcomer part now and close the letter out, but we can't. You know, there's, there's the whole rest of the body here is devoted to what they're not doing so well. So we got to go on to the next subject, um, which is their holiness, their sanctification, their consecration. They're, they're being set apart by God in the world and not selling out. Um, being an influence on the world basically is the next subject, rather than being influenced by it. It's not going to be an A+. He goes on to say in verse 20, I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food offered to idols. So the first question is, who is this Je Jezebel? And, and the truth is, nobody's really sure. Like, I really doubt that this was the... the can I even say chick anymore, or is that offensive? This chick, like... That probably wasn't her real name, right? This, this, was, this, was, this was the identification of her by Jesus. This is what Jesus called her. And, and, and yet the church, even if that wasn't her real name, would have known exactly what this meant and who he was talking about. Because she's someone who's familiar, isn't she? She's someone that we've, that we've seen before. Um... Her name has some history. Do you guys remember the most wicked king that Israel ever had? His name was King Ahab. King Ahab had a wife. Her name was Jezebel. And what was she known for? Her idol worship. She worshiped Baal or Baal B-A-A-L, however you want to pronounce it, right? And she came back as the king's wife with power and authority and great influence and ended up winning over the people of God to also worship Baal, and they did. Israel became, for a time, largely Baal worshipers, even to the point where they started sacrificing their own children to Baal, like it was bad, it wasn't, it wasn't one of those memories that, that, that Israel wants to remember in history. And it was so bad that after a period of time, God finally came and put an end to it by giving Israel over to its primary enemy at that time, Babylon. You remember that story? They came, took over Israel, basically decimated the place, wiped it clean, and took everything, including the children back, and they went into captivity. That's kind of how God immediately dealt with their, their idol worship, with this lady. And it is in this sense that both that Jezebel and this Jezebel have a lot in common, right? Getting the children of God to drink the Kool-Aid of idolatry. That's the bottom line with both of them. Jezebel was the name of a deceiver of the people of God in the Old Testament, and she's a deceiver of the people of God here in the New Testament. And think about it. There's a reason why we don't name our kids Jezebel. You know what I mean? I don't know how many of you like had a daughter, knew you were having a daughter. Like that probably wasn't on the, the list of potential names, you know, any more than like Judas is. Or like there's a reason people don't call their, name their boys like Judas or Lucifer, right? There's a reason why we don't meet women named Jezebel is because it, it, it means something. It's synonymous with something that, that isn't good. Her name is synonymous with wickedness and deceit and debauchery. But this Jezebel here, her main threat wasn't just in that she promoted, or it wasn't just in what she promoted, which was idol worship, but in how she promoted it. This is the scary part. This is the part where you and I really need to be careful um, when we deal with 
false apostles, false teachers, false prophets. It's easy for you and I to say, oh, what they're promoting is false. But if they're actually smart and they're actually cunning and they're actually intellectual and authoritative and likable, we might actually listen to it a little more than we should. And we need to be really careful with this. She was, she was dangerous, not just in her encouragement of ungodly behavior, but how she lured the people of God into that ungodly behavior, which was enticing people with a certain language and a certain insight, a higher thinking, you might say, right? It would seem that, that she spun her poison intellectually, that she employed an intellectual approach, which Jesus refers to in verse 24 as the deep things of Satan. As if she's cluing them in on something, as if she's helping them to think more clear or maybe more deeply about God. As if, as if maybe they've been misinformed or misled in their current belief and thinking concerning what God really wants from them. And, and if there's one thing that I've learned in my brief 10 years of pastoring, it's that these people still exist in the church and they are dangerous still. They are dangerous still. And, and some of the characteristics these Jezebels seem to have in, in common is their, like I said before, their likability, their intellectual appeal. They're, they're not stupid. They're pretty sharp. They know their word pretty well, even, right? And, and their authoritative nature. Uh, people are drawn to them. They're, 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 uh, they have this leader magnetism, you know, follow me, follow me, and, 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 and we do a lot of times. Um, and, and, and the stuff they're pushing, uh, the false prophet, is always billed as the deeper things of God. Have you ever met these people? The deeper things of God, which Jesus would call the deeper things of Satan. They're not the same thing. Just, just, just remember this, if nothing else. God never recants, okay? I'm going to give you a real easy way. To, to see a red flag and to identify this people. God never recants. He never changes his mind. He never one day goes, gosh, I wish I wouldn't have written that here. I, I don't really believe that anymore. I don't really think that way anymore. Like God doesn't do that. His word is the same. God is the same yesterday, today, tomorrow. He, he doesn't change. What he has said, no matter how politically incorrect it gets, no matter how foreign or alien it seems, it is his once-for-all truth to the human race. It doesn't change, ever. And so if you ever hear these people that come in and say, let me, let me lead you into a different way of thinking about this scripture or this passage or what God had to say about this, have you ever heard this? I've heard it from Christians. You're on the wrong side of history. Because I'm holding to something that's primitive. It's like, no, that's what they, that's what they believed back then. That's for those people. Like God said that for those people. It doesn't mean anything here because we've already accepted and embraced all of this. You're on the wrong side of history. God is never on the wrong side of history with what he's proclaimed to us, with what he's given to us. It is certain, it is stable, it is a solid rock and foundation that is a light to our path so that we don't trip and fall. And so we need to stay on the lit path, which is to believe and receive everything that he's written and preserved for us. That's why we come and we spend time proclaiming the word of God to each other. That's why we do this right now, right? It's so that we keep our path lit, so, the, so that we don't fall into something stupid because we're gonna hear from every single area in our life, even family members, even other Christians in this day and age that we're believing something out of the word that we shouldn't be believing because nobody does that anymore. Nobody sees things that, it's bull when you hear it. Don't buy it. Look like the dumb one, okay? Look like the primitive one who's stuck way back there in history. The word of God's never wrong. It's never gonna do you wrong. It's never gonna lead you wrong. It's never gonna harm you. It's there to bless you and to keep you safe and to bring you joy and happiness in him. That's what it's there for, all right? That's one of the characteristics that these false prophets will always have in common is they will say something spinning it as if it's a, it's a new spin or a deeper spin on something that's God's, but it's not. And Jesus would say, that's, that's not only not from God, that's from Satan. 
That's the deeper thing of Satan. We need to keep our eyes and our ears open and, and stay on guard with this stuff. So what's the point? The point of, of, of the entire um, uh, negative report here in the report card is that Jesus is not okay with his church, his people sleeping with the enemy. That's the bottom line. If you were to sum this up in one sentence, Jesus is not okay with his church sleeping with the enemy. Amen? We cool with that? Jesus is not okay with his church selling out to things that are contrary to him. Again, no matter how much they seem to know or how attractive they may be or how much the world has changed, he's not okay with it. He's not worried about being found on the wrong side of history. No matter when it happens or where it happens, Jesus is never okay with his people compromising. Listen, no matter how much is at stake, no matter how much it might cost you, no matter how deep into the minority you may find yourself, when it comes to the subject of loyalty and holiness and allegiance, regardless of the cost, these guys bombed the course. Because being in the world and not of it, being in the world and not of the world, is not an elective if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus. It's not an elective. It's, a, it's actually a prerequisite. It's required learning for the people of God. It's a course that we all must take and take seriously for his glory and for our good. Compromising the known will of God to save our own skin and make our life easier is a huge problem to Jesus and he would know. He's not asking us to do something he hasn't done. Jesus counted the cost. Jesus counted the cost in ways that you and I will never even come close to experiencing. He's not telling us to do something that he hasn't experienced and completely felt and lived through and done. What do you think it was like for him in the wilderness when Satan came to him? The Bible would indicate that he was really tempted, that it was a real temptation. Though he was without sin and he passed that test, that it, that it was hard, that there was actually a struggle that went on, that there was actually something appealing to what Satan was offering him. Otherwise, it would cease to be a real temptation. And he moved through it, hungry and tired, knowing what was before him. It would have been a way out. We see him do this in the garden, right? Sweating drops of blood because he has so much anxiety over what is about to happen. He's about to go to the cross. And, and it's really, really challenging him. He's having to count the cost. And, and what, what does he say in his prayer? Lord, let's, I'm just, I just need to check again real quick. Like if there's a plan B anywhere, if there's like any other, any other artery out of this, like give it to me, show me the money, let me do it. That, like, like it was real what he was about to face, what he was about to walk through. He had to count the cost. And then on the cross, consider this, the creator of the world being murdered and tortured and mocked by that which he created. And he, he stayed there. He could have jumped off that cross and just slapped people down, like handled business. And he stayed. He stayed to the end. He counted the cost. He, he knows. He knows what it's like. He knows what he's asking of us when he tells us to count the cost, when he tells us to go through those hardships and those challenges no matter what it might cost. He knows. He identifies with us. He sympathizes with us. And I think the biggest thing is that he's with us when we walk through that, when we go through that. Satan seems to have two primary tactics when it comes to messing with the church of God. One is to just crush them. It's to, it's to come down on the church so hard that they're just snuffed out, right? And, and when that doesn't succeed, it's number two, to join them, to befriend the church, which I know that you guys have seen in your lifetime, in your cities. And it was the same thing there. 
Satan will actually take up membership sometimes in the church and just sit down right next to you. And, 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 and sometimes um, we'll invite him if we're not, again, awake, if we're not aware. We'll, we'll pull up a chair right next to us and say, sit here, friend. And before we know it, we're, we're duped. Though the circumstances may look different today, this tactic of Satan is not different. He is still joining churches across the globe, becoming members of churches across the globe. Uh, in our current time and place, it's primarily in the, form, in the form of bringing us alternative gospels, which again, isn't new, but it's highly effective. So he just plays that card over and over again, but it's going on more and more around us here in the country that we live in. False gospels, alternative gospels, just tweaking enough here and there until it's false enough to send people to hell. Whether it's the prosperity gospel or the poverty gospel or everything in between, it doesn't matter. Those alternative gospels are telling you there's a different reason why you need Jesus other than the reason why you really need him, which is because you're a sinner who has offended a holy God. That's why we really need him. But we don't tell people that anymore. We tell them they need out of that hard circumstance they're in, and Jesus is powerful. He's good to do it. And people go, cool, I can use that right now. And they rub, they rub the lamp and wait for the genie to come out. And they're still in their sin all the while, which God will see them in if they don't get rid of it. In one form or another, false gospels aim to tell us that we need Jesus to save us from something other than our sins. It's a, a progressive Christianity, I think, is one of the biggest ones that we have going on right now. Anybody heard of this? Progressive Christianity. It's exactly what it sounds like if you were to put it in a political mindset, where, where um, basically it challenges orthodoxy. It's like the, these things, it's really time for them to evolve and, and, and be changed and, and for us to, 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 to come out of, the, again, these old, these old ways of thinking, these old ways of interpreting our Bible. It's basically an assault on orthodoxy. Right? So you start questioning everything, like hell, and like the resurrection. I mean, you can, you can go on down the line with it. And, and it, it really, I think, is birthed out of the reality that you and I live in a postmodern society. What is that? That just means that there's really no truth. We can almost just call it a post-truth society. There's a rejection of absolute truth. And when there's an, a, a, a rejection of absolute truth, when we can say absolute truth does not exist, where then can we go? Whatever I want to be true is what exists, right? So instead of objective truth, we live in a world that promotes subjective truth. And so this is why we have progressive Christianity invading our churches is because they're just products of the society. They've been influenced by what's going on out there. And so they're bringing that into the church and saying, you guys need to stop going like this with everything in your Bible that's been held to. You need to give space. Jesus is, is not the only way. Like for me, he is. Like, I, like that's why I come to a Christian church is because I believe in Jesus. But you know what? I know a lot of good people who talk about God and say the word blessing in their posts and, and like they're gonna be fine. They don't have anything to do with Jesus, but like they're gonna be there too. Always lead up, that's progressive Christianity. It's bull. It sends people, it sends people to hell. Um, this is one way that Satan is, is becoming friends with the church today, and we need to be on the lookout for it because there are absolute truths. Um, someone's right and someone's wrong. Let me just say it like that. Someone's right and someone's wrong. We are not all right. We are not all right. And I know that we don't want to hear this. I mean, believe me, I understand why people subscribe to progressive Christianity. It's, it's super convenient because it allows us to call our own shots still. It allows us to be those rebels that Romans 1 tells us we are against God, that we're bent away from God instead of for God, and nobody tells me what to do, and I'm not under subjection or authority to anybody. And, 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 and by buying into this belief that actually there is no truth, it's, it's all kind of true, and that does away with consequence. 
It does away with accountability. It's so convenient, right? This is Romans 1. And that's what it does. But the truth is this, guys. You and I, as Christians, are buying into an absolute truth statement. Someone is right and someone is wrong. Either Jesus is right or Jesus is wrong. Let's put it this way, okay? This goes to the heart of Christianity. he, He doesn't leave us room for deliberations or relativistic interpretations when he makes statements like, no one comes to the Father but through me. Either that's true or it's a lie. Either that's a true statement or it's a false one. Either Jesus is exclusive, no matter how much people hate exclusivity, or it's the greatest absolute truth that mankind can ever know, which I believe it's the second. That statement is either believed and received as an absolute truth, which is called repentance, or it's rejected and discarded as not true, which is where Jesus brings us next to this letter. Verses 21 through 23 tells us that her, even her, Jezebel, is shown patience by God. I don't get this part. Like when I read this and I'm seeing a chick like this doing what she's doing to the church, like it's like just put the boot down on the cockroach. You know what I mean? Like, praise God, I'm not him. Praise God, he hasn't left me in charge to, to do what he does. Because I, I never would have come to the knowledge of Christ if I was that judge. Like, I, I wouldn't wait. I wouldn't be patient. God is, and he gives even this woman doing this an opportunity to repent. Even the one who destroys and corrupts the people of God has shown the goodness of God in an opportunity to repent and to turn and to be made right, to acknowledge that she is wrong and he is right, but she will not. Because she's convinced of the deeper things of Satan while believing of the deep things of God. And so God's gonna close that window of repentance and not endure with her forever or her children, which just means those who follow her. I'm sure you guys probably played that, but that's, that's all that means. Those who followed her. And his wrath awaits them. His bronze feet of judgment are coming for them. And he will cast them into a sickbed, quote, unquote. Not sure what that is. But what I, I, I don't know if it's physical or literal or spiritual or all of the above. But what we do know is that Jezebel and her followers are very familiar with beds, Right? And so he's just going to give her another one to lay in. He's going to take her and all who follow her from her bed of pleasure and put her into a bed of pain. Again, he sees all and he executes judgment on all that he sees so that all the churches will know that it is he that searches the mind and the heart and gives to each according to their works. And then in verses 24 and 25, the letter begins to lead us into the message to the overcomer. There's kind of a transition point, right? Which says, but to the rest of you, you who haven't sold out, you who haven't compromised, you who haven't slept with the enemy, who do not hold to his teaching, who have not learned that some call what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast to what you have till I come. In other words, for those of you who are not playing Jezebel's game, stay put, keep doing what you're doing. You're doing well. There is no burden, there is no rock that he adds to their bag to put more weight in it. It's just, don't drink the Kool-Aid. Just keep not drinking it. Keep loving well, keep remaining faithful, keep serving others, keep enduring patiently. That's it, that's it, that's good enough. Hold fast till I come, right? Yes, you may lose your jobs. Yes, you may fall into some hard times, but I assure you, you will soon be given a job by me that will make it all worth it. Which brings us to the closing verses to the overcomer, the prize. The first being that Jesus is going to give those who overcome authority by him to rule over the nations. In other words, you know those who are ruling over you right now and making your life miserable and hard right now? Well, if you hold tight, if you just hold on a little longer till I come, I'm gonna appoint you 
to rule over them. That's crazy. This is called redemption. This is called the turning of the table. This is called justice. And we all like justice, right? We all like it. He goes on to say that he will overcome or that the overcomer will rule them, the current oppressor, with a rod of iron. As when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself has received authority from my father. Where have we heard this before? It is in the Bible. It's a prophecy given to us by David in Psalm 2, which says this. The Lord said to me, you're my son. Today, I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession and you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. That's the overcomer in Thyatira who will take refuge in him, who take refuge in him. It means that Jesus is not stingy with what the Father gives him. Do you catch that? Because this, in this prophecy in the Psalms, it's, it, it's, it's a reward, it's, a, it's a, a, a victorious prize given to Jesus by the Father as a result of what his accomplishment would be. It's, it's Jesus's to rule over the nations and to judge the nations and to break them into pieces. But here in Revelation to, to the, the church in Thyatira, he's saying, if you overcome, I'm going to bring you in on that. I'm not going to ride solo like you're going to ride shotgun as we cruise the, the globe, as we roll over the nations and we put everything straight and we eradicate wickedness and evilness and sin once for all. You're going to be with me on that. That's amazing. I kind of like got chills right now just thinking about it. That's amazing. And, and, and how much did these guys need to hear something like that? How much did they, did they need to know that, that Jesus was going to share that love and bring them in on something like this? Because they lived under some pretty gnarly oppressors. And he's saying, I'm going to turn the tables. Just hold on. Just wait. I'm going to flip the script. All right. The next reward to the overcomer, the final reward to the overcomer, is that he will gift us the bright and the morning star. He will gift us the bright and morning star. Uh, what the heck is that? <laughs> um, in ancient times, throughout basically history up to this point, it was the goddess Venus. She was the one known as the morning star. Um, she was seen as the, the source of all authority in the Greek world. But if we cheat and we turn to the end of our book in Revelation chapter 22, we see Jesus call himself the bright and morning star. And uh, do you know what that means? That means that they will get him. That means that the overcomer gets Jesus. Jesus is the prize. Jesus is the reward. And this is important for us to park on for a second because I fear that many of us have this wrong. I feel like a lot of us who grew up in Sunday school had, had what heaven is ruined for us. I, I know that I did, you know. Um, and so I want to ask you a question. Don't answer it out loud. Just think about this. What do you think heaven is like? What do you think heaven is like? What do you think heaven is? What do you think is the point? What is it you hope to get there? What is your greatest imagination of it? Because if your answer or contemplations or imaginings or fantasies are not Jesus, you're going to be severely disappointed. And dare I say, you may be seeking a salvation right now for a reason that doesn't even facilitate salvation. Because it, it's all about Jesus. 
I've heard the question asked and I've had it asked to me so many times, what do you think heaven is like? And I've, and I've come to find that, that most of the answers has something to do with the large quantities of something we really, really like, like ice cream or animals, or if you're a Mormon dude, women, you know, like, like it, it just seems to be something that, that, that facilitates us. That's what I think heaven's gonna be like. And don't tell me you haven't, you haven't had those imaginations of it, because I think we all have, trying to figure out this thing that's incomprehensible. Very little, I think it's, it's Jesus. Just give, me, just give me Jesus. But it's all about Jesus. Heaven is all about Jesus. Jesus is the way, he's the truth, he's the life, and he's the prize. He is the reward. It's him. He's the subject of salvation and he's the subject of heaven. We get him wholly and completely and finally. Does this thought excite you or does it disappoint you? Praise God, I say, that we're not getting a cloud with a harp. Like that, that just doesn't sound good in any way, on any level. When you think that Jesus is what you get in heaven, does that cause your soul to scream, yes, or does it let you down? He told us this up front. He said that this was like the catch, like this is the bait that he put out to the world when he came, right? He disclosed this to his disciples. I go to prepare a place for you so that where I am, you may be also with, with me, with me. He's saying, I'm it. I'm the reason to follow me now. It's not a secret. That's always been his selling point. That's the appeal. That's what he's leading out with. That's the draw, and that's the reward for those who are being drawn. It's Jesus, finally, ultimately, eternally, forever, with him and him with us. It's an eternal staycation with our, with our Lord and our Savior. And, it, and it's not for everybody. It's only for those who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. It's only for those who are being saved. So is that you? In retail today, um, they have this thing, I'll close with this, um, that's called a loss leader. Has anybody ever heard of that? A loss leader, Rick has. What that means is that companies and organizations will sometimes lose something in order to sell something. You guys have all walked into these places, I know. They'll make it up elsewhere. They'll give away some piece of merchandise to get you into their store. Um, I grew up in LA, and so we had the Dodgers right here, and the Kings right here, and the Lakers right here, and the Angels right here, and um, the Raiders right here. That was back in those days, dating myself. And so like, there'd, there'd be times my dad was a big baseball junkie, and he'd be like, we're going to the ballpark like it's bat day, or it's like hat day, you know? Or it's like foam finger day. I don't even know what you call those, those big stupid pointy foam fingers. It's like, dude, I gotta have that, right? And they'd have those days and those would be the ones to draw the biggest crowds so that you would get in the door and get that foam finger, you know, and be like, oh, they, like I got something, you know? But like the truth is like they're, they're giving, they're cutting off a pinky and you're giving them a kidney still. You know what I mean? You ever bought food in these places? I mean, just a ticket alone, right? Like they're giving you nothing and you're still giving them a lot, but you feel like you're, you feel like you're, you know, getting something, but you're not. We may lose something now, but it will equate to a really big gain in the end as, Christ, uh, as Christians. This is a lot what like Christianity is like. Loss leader, if we flip it upside down, we will pay a price up front, whether it's losing our job or losing some friends or losing a family member or being hated by everybody or having somebody slander us and talk junk about us because we don't play their games with them. Whatever it is, we may lose something up front, but it is worth what we gain in the end and in the back. And Jesus wants this church in Thyatira to know that. He wants them to know that he is worth it now and then, and that he's going to make it completely worth it then, whatever it is they have to give up now. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus assures us, blessed are you 
when others revile you and persecute you and speak evil about you and fire you from your jobs and throw you out of their clubs and their homes and their parties and their guilds. Rejoice, he says. Rejoice and be glad. Be happy. Be happy in that turmoil and persecution because great is your reward in heaven. Are you guys ready? Are you guys ready for this? Because things are about to get worse. The garbage, the oppression, the anti-Christian aggression is coming to a town near you. And if you don't have a hope in where you're going and who it is that you're going to find when you get there, I, I don't know how you can endure it without that. We, we, we have to have our crosshairs focused on eternity, not on now. Or else we will do stupid things, just like these guys did. Thank you, Lord, for giving us, for preserving words that we can, first of all, trust. We don't have to question. If there are things you still agree with, we know. We believe that you still agree with everything that we read here this morning. Thank you for preserving those for our benefit, for our current time of need, to strengthen us, God, to shear us up for what it is that's coming. God, we, we believe you're worth it. We believe you're worth everything that's coming. And we thank you that you're the reward. I thank you that that when I get to that final resting place, your kingdom that will be finally and ultimately set up, that I will get you, that I will see you, that I will be with you. Thank you, Lord, for reminding me of that reality, which brings me blessing now. Strengthen your church, God. Give them eyes like fire and feet like bronze to false prophets and to Satan's tactics so that we will see them a mile away, so that we will protect the sheep, so that we will protect the truth, so that we will be grounded there. We thank you that ultimately, no matter what the enemy does, the church is yours. Nobody can take it. We thank you that the gates of hell will not prevail on what it is you're building. So thank you for letting us be a part of that. To your glory. Amen.